still hours the dance, the feast, the glorious psalm, the mystic lights of emblem and the word. Where is our Judas? Where our five-branched palm? Where are the lion warriors of the Lord? Clash Israel, the cymbals, touch the lyre, sound the brass trumpet and the harsh-tongued horn. Chant hymns of victory till the heart take fire, the Maccabean spirit leap newborn. We left off yesterday, not yesterday, the other day. Um, first of all, actually, good evening and welcome to the class um, dedicated to Rabbi Sachs, the late Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, um, and the parents of my dear friend, uh, Roxanne, whose names are Chaya um, Masodi uh, Bat Rachel and Hanania and Hanania Ben Simcha. Um, may their memories be blessed. So we, we're, we, we, we kind of set the scene and we talked about a little bit of the background. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about background and then we'll get into the actual story today. So, so because we, we, we spoke a lot about the political um, situation during the second temple era from the return of the Jews out of Babylonian captivity under the Persians and then under the Greeks, first under the Greek, um, the Egyptian Greeks, the Ptolemies, and then under the, the Syrian Greeks, the Seleucids. Um, what was going on internally um, within the Jewish within 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 the Jewish community um, in terms of uh, you know religious life and in terms of, of of political life also? So I think I mentioned the leadership was a council of elders, um, and we have reference to a Knesset Hagdolah. Today, the Israeli Knesset has, uh, I believe, has 120 members because of the 120 members of that old uh, Great Assembly. We don't have that many details about it about it exactly. Um, but you know, whereas in the, during the first the period of the first Commonwealth, during the or or what's called the Bayitri Shon during the time of the, uh, the of the first Temple, there had been a kind of what we today we would say separation of church and state. Then it was not quite that, but there was civil authority under a ruling king, a ruling dynasty which came from the house of David. Um, I'm talking about in the southern kingdom of of Yehuda, of Judah, um, with its capital at Jerusalem. You had a royal family that ran political affairs, and you had. And, and, and was head of state, and you had the priestly families that were in charge of the temple ritual. And they were, they, they, what, they, they weren't completely separate, but they were different, you know, branches. Um, during the Second Temple era, you don't have that at all. The return to, to Zion is led by Kohanim. Ezra himself is a Kohen, and the Kohen Gadol is going to be the supreme political figure throughout the time of the, of the Second Temple. Um, even when the, the Hasmoneans will start calling themselves kings, and so there will be a royal family again, it's a, it's a family of Kohanim. And, um, and most of them are, serve as Kohen Gadol, even as they serve as king, um, I believe. Now, if we look at a famous Mishnah in the beginning of Pirkei Avot, which traces the uh, transmission of the oral law, and it says, you know, Moses, Joshua, the elders, um, the, I'm sorry, the, pro the elders, the prophets, and then the men of the great assembly, the Knesset Agdola, and then it says the, the, of the last few members of the great assembly was Shimon HaTzadik. So Shimon HaTzadik is this legendary figure. And it's hard to reconcile the different stories about him. So there might have been more than one Shimon, and some of the stories um, that are told about one of them are, you know, confused with another one. But there was somebody named Shimon. And by the way, the, the name Shimon, I'm always interested in the names. Shimon is a very, very popular name. You have a lot of Shimons later. In the Mishnah, you have a bunch, and in the Gemara, and, and uh, during this period of the Hasmoneans, you have a lot of a lot of Shimons. Perhaps they're all, I mean, of course, it's a biblical name. It's one of the, the 12, one of the 12 sons of Jacob is Shimon. 
but most of most of the people, most of the Jews living there, were not descendants of that tribe. They weren't parts of members of that tribe. Although the tribe of Shimon had mixed with the tribe of Yehuda, so there may have been some. Um, so I'm not sure why, but there is this legendary figure, Shimon Atzadik. They say he was the he was the Kohen Gadol and the leader of the Jews. And whenever he was, you know, there were all these miracles. The Gemara says all these miracles that happened when he was officiating in the temple. You know, I think I think it says that he was the he he he, he led the people for uh, 40 years. And by the Talmudic account, he's in the time of Alexander when Alexander conquers. Uh, conquers Jerusalem, he goes out to greet him and and has a very, you know, he's blessed by him. Everybody knows the story. Um, but we're not going to, we're not going to dwell on him. And he's also the famous one, just one last thing, because of course what he's most famous for is the three pillars, right? Which is so uh, famous in, in Jewish teaching that, that the world rests on three pillars, the study of Torah, the avodah, the temple ritual, and um, an act of kindness. The, the whole world rests on those three things. Anyway, so that's Shimon HaTzadik, Simon the Just, he's called in the literature, and then um, his descendants, his family, um, and and uh, the the Kahuna, obviously, is a it's a it's a it's a uh, uh, tribal thing, right? It's a, uh, every Kohen, uh, every priest has to be a descendant of Aaron. But there are certain families that have you know that have kind of you know passed from one generation to the next um, as as a position. So so the descendants of Shimon Atzadik will be Kohanim Gidolim, but it gets confusing who's who. There's a couple of Shimons and there's a couple of Chonyas. Um, Chonya might uh, probably is originally uh, Yochanan, so it's like a derivative of Yochanan, which is a biblical name. It's a minor biblical name. There's not very, I don't think they're very famous Yochanans. You have a Yehochanan and Yochanan, which is just a shortened version. It literally means the grace of God or God be gracious. Yehochanan. Um, and it's also going to become a very, very common name. It will be uh, it's, it's It's Hellenized form, and the way it's written in Greek would be John. The Yud often becomes a John, right? The people of Yehuda became Jews. You know, the way the Greeks pronounced it was with a Y. They didn't say. I don't think they had the the, the J sound in their language. I was trying to I was trying to uh, to research that a little bit. Seems like like in Greek you don't you don't have a J sound. So all the Js were were Y. What we would call a Y. Even the English J is very recent. It's like from the 16th century. It was during the time of printing. Uh, that's why the J and the, the J is just basically an I with a little swash, a little Nike swa uh, thing on the bottom. And, 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 and it has this, the, the little tittle. It's called a tittle. It's literally called a little tittle. Um, the little dot that you put over the J and over the I. That's just an irrelevant fact. But um, anyway, back to our story. So a, a descendant of Shimon HaTzadik, of Simon the Just, is Onias, which is Yochanan. And he's a Kohen Gadol. And when he dies, he has two sons. One of them is named Onias. And the second one is also named Onias. And the third one is named... Um, is named um, uh, 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 Yehoshua, uh, which in the Greek is Jesus. So you have Onias, Onias, and Jesus, uh, or Chanya, Chanya, and Yehoshua. The first one becomes Kohen Gadol, and he dies. The, 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 the next two take on Greek names, and they're known to us. Onias is known to us by his Greek name. Onias is Chanya, so that's a Hebrew name. And he takes on the, the, the Greek name Jason, um, although they would pronounce it Yason, I think Jason today in, in modern Greek is Yasonus or something like that. Um, and the other, the, 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 his brother, who was Yehoshua or Jesus, becomes, um, becomes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yehoshua takes on the name Jason and Onias takes on the name Menelaus. So you have Menelaus and Jason. 
I'm just saying this because that's the way they're always referred. These two brothers always referred to as Jason and Menelaus. And in some of the accounts of the story, it makes it sound like one of them was more into traditional Judaism, the other one was more of a Hellenizing influence. It doesn't seem like that. Like that's the case. It seems like they were both quite under Hellenistic influence. They both wanted to change a lot of things uh, um, and, and make things a little bit more Hellenistic. And they both and 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 what way it seems to me is that more important than any other considerations were you know religious considerations or sensitivities was just pure politics. The ruling power, you know, the you know adopting the ruling power's religion always gets you a little. A little closer to the, you know, a little, you know, the people will sympathize, right? The Roman Empire, uh, Christianity becomes so so widespread when the Roman Empire becomes Christian. Before they banned any other religions, just the fact that, you know, if you want to get a good appointment, uh, appointment to a good position, they're going to favor you if you follow their their religion. So the ruling religion is always able to, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that people want to want to join it, and these two brothers are. Um, rivals for the position of Kohen Gadol, of high priest, which is also basically the highest political position in this autonomous region of Judea. So they both want to get the ear of Antiochus, the Seleucid king, who is the ruling power. And so they promise him different things. One of them, uh, Menelaus, promises him all kinds of uh, all kinds of treasures in order to get the to get the money to pay him. He has to take it from the temple treasury. A civil war erupts between these two brothers, and they try to outdo each other in their Hellenism. That's how it seems to me. There's different versions, and it's very confusing. Um, but what? But if you remember last week, Antioch, the Antiochus that we're referring to is Antiochus the Fourth, and known as Antiochus Epiphanes, and he has just taken advantage of a, a weakness in Egypt. In Greek Egypt, there was uh, the, the the Ptolemy the Fourth, I think, had died. And his son, Ptolemy Philometor, um, was very young. And so Antiochus IV sees an opportunity to, to take Egypt. And so he invades Egypt. The Romans push him back, not militarily, just the, the Roman envoys just tell him that you, you can't take Egypt. The Senate, the Senate has decreed, like we said last week. So he's en route back, up the coastal route, back to Antioch, his capital. And on the way, Jerusalem's not far from the coastal route that he's taking. And there's a civil war going on between Jason and his factions, Menelaus and his factions, in Jerusalem. Jason is in control. Jason has taken control. Uh, uh, Ant Antiochus had supported Menelaus originally. And Jason taking control was seen as a rebellion against Antiochus's authority. And it might well have been a rebellion against Antiochus's authority. Um, before continuing the story, let's talk about some of these Hellenistic um, uh, innovations. That, that 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 they're bringing in. So, so some of the big things are, have to do with athletics, right? The athletic games, which were not—they weren't sports. They were very serious business. Not to say that they're not serious business today, but it was taken a lot more seriously. And and the reason that it could conflict with uh, with Jewish life was simply because they were performed today in quarantine. A lot of us have become well, never mind. Um, but they were performed in the gymnasium naked and. You know, if anybody has ever seen the Friends episode where Joey has to has to is going for an audition and he has to be naked in the audition, but he's playing a role of a person who lives at a time when most people were not, let us say, circumcised. Um, <laughs> let us say, what was I saying? And now I'm just thinking about Friends, and then Monica fashions that thing for so so <laughs> so. If you wanted to perform in the games, if you were a young Jewish man and you wanted to perform 
um, in the in the games in the gymnasium, then you know you were very embarrassed. The Greeks did not looked at um, at Mila at circumcision as a barbaric practice. So right, it was seen as in as uncivilized. So so you would so people would do surgery to restore restorative surgery. You know, um, anyway, let's continue. And um, but but uh, so that's one thing. Uh, establishing a gymnasium in Jerusalem, and some of the other things um, had to do with um, uh, with uh, worship of uh, of Greek gods. But that would that would uh, essentially come later. I'm trying to remember what other things right that he did right then. My notes for this class are very poor, unfortunately. Um, anyway, as I said, Antiochus is on his way through the land of Israel, the region of Judea. Really, it's not it's not it's not called. It's not, a, it's not a, a, a state, a state, but it's a region, right? He's traveling. He gets word that there's this war. Jason has flouted his authority uh, um, and taken control of the temple. So Antiochus invades Jerusalem. And even though he comes, ostensibly he's coming to, to support his ally, uh, Menelaus, he, he just plunders the temple. He burns, he loots, he, take, he steals a lot of the holy objects. This happens on the 25th day of the month of Kislev which today is the first day of Hanukkah. Um, and it's in the year 168 before the Common Era. In a way, reading the story is a bit like, uh, you know, a, 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 a schoolyard bully who, you know, a, 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 somebody, somebody shoves him. And so he goes over to a weaker kid and beats, and beats him up, you know? So Antiochus had just been humiliated by the Romans. And now he <clears throat> kind of took his anger out on the Jews who were, you know, who were weaker. Uh, um, and and that, that might've been part of it. Um, part of it was, as I said, you know, just insecurity. Again, <laughs> a lot of bullies probably, a lot of bullying probably comes from that, um, because his empire was uh, felt like it was crumbling, and he had he was he wasn't just facing rebellion here; he's facing rebellion um, in the east, in the Parthian province uh, from the Parthians, and and uh, in today's Iran, and uh, those provinces are further; they're much harder to defend, and they're very wealthy. So you really, you re he really feels like things are falling apart, and so. As a unifying influence, something that's going to try to keep that this can keep his empire together, he feels like everybody has to worship the same gods and you know keep the same practices. And the Jews have these weird other practices; they don't worship our gods. They um, you know keep the, keep the Sabbath. They don't work on Sabbath. They're called they actually call them atheists, right? Because they don't believe in the gods; they just believe in their one god. Um, and so he enacts the infamous um, anti-religious decrees. It's the first religious persecution in history that we know of. Um, and uh, after you know looting the temple, taking the holy objects, he transforms it into a shrine for the to the to the Olymp Olympian god Zeus, and he uh, uh, offers he offers up swine on the altar on the the, the Jewish altar, bans Jewish practices on pain of death. Anybody uh, any baby that's circumcised is is killed along with its mother, um, keeping the Shabbat is outlawed and offering sw swine to pagan gods. Throughout the territory of Judea, every 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 Jewish town, village, or whatever is ordered to offer sacrifices to the pagan gods, and the sacrifices would be a pig. And uh, this is something that was a really very bitter bitter pill to swallow. Streams of refugees um, leave Jerusalem and you know go to, to all the villages and towns or whatever. But the Greeks are kind of not far behind and send out uh, the Seleucids send out troops like to, like in fanning out operations to all the villages and towns in the mountains. Of Judea, the hills, um, um, uh, to enforce these anti-religious regulations, and the famous story happens now. Where a unit under uh, officer named Apelles, 
builds, comes to the town, the little village of Modin near Jerusalem, builds an altar, and orders the elderly priest, the Kohen, who had been living in Jerusalem, and uh, I don't know, he's, he's, he's called a, uh, a citizen of Jerusalem. Um, he's called a citizen of Jerusalem, but he lived in Modin, so maybe he had a summer home or winter home. Um, perhaps he had lived in Jerusalem and then left because of the persecutions. It's not clear. Um, they, so they order him to, to offer the, you know, the pig on the altar, and he refuses. Somebody else steps up and volunteers, and Matityahu, Matthias, or Matthias, runs him through with his sword. He and his sons, you know, challenge the Greek soldiers. They kill Apelles, they kill the soldiers. And, um, you know, the first shot has been fired. This is like the Lexington, like the, like the Battle of Lexington, where, you know, it wasn't, it, not, not much was accomplished there, but it was this later, you know, is seen as the beginning the beginning of the rebellion. Um, Matisio famously has five sons. Let's read a little bit more from Emma, Emma Lazarus. Five branches grown from Mattathias's stem. The blessed John, the keen-eyed Jonathan, Simon the fair, the burst of spring, the gem. Elazar, help of God over all his clan. Judas, the lion prince, the avenging rod towered in warrior beauty, uncrowned king, armed with the breastplate and the sword and the sword of God. They immediately after this small, you know, skirmish where they where they killed these Greek soldiers, they know that they're, they, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be uh, uh, in great danger. So they, they flee the town, they hide in the caves, um, and people start gathering around them. It's still a very small band. It's about 200 people, maybe 50 of them are able to fight. But little by little, over the course of a year, more people join them and they start training. During this year, the elderly Matityahu, who had started the rebellion, Mattathias, dies. Before he dies, he tells his sons that Shimon, his, his eldest, should be their leader in council. He's the wisest of them. And his third son, Yehuda, Judas, Judas Maccabeus, Maccabeus probably means hammer, um, uh, and later people would say that he had on his... Uh, on his shield, Maccabi, Mikamocha um, uh, Hashem. He would be the military leader. He's strong. He's uh, he's courageous, and and he he starts training. So Yehuda, uh, Judas Maccabeus, starts training uh, people in guerrilla warfare. They just have you know very uh, primitive uh, weapons and farming implements. Uh, but over the course of a year, their their band grows to about several hundred people. What did I just want to say? I forgot. La, 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 la. His band had grown to about 700 people. I think it was meant to say several hundred people. Several, not 700. I don't think it says 700. Um, they're hiding. They hide out in caves. And they're not a united group. Yehuda has his group. And there's a lot of other groups of Jews hiding in caves because of these anti-religious persecutions. And there's a terrible, tragic story that happens where the Greeks used the Jews' religious convictions and convictions against them. And this is actually also an interesting um, halachic uh, uh, discussion and kind of turning point. There's, there's about a thousand people, men, women, and children, re Jewish refugees hiding in caves. The Greeks find them, the Seleucid soldiers find them, and they wait for the Shabbat. And they know that on Shabbat, these Jews will not, fi will not fight back because, they, because it would violate Shabbat to, to engage in combat. And so they smoke them. They, they I'm sorry. They uh, they light fires at the entrances, and they, and and and, and a, a 
according to the to the sources, uh, a thousand people are killed rather than raise arms on Shabbat. And um, I think that actually this happened while Matityahu was still alive, and he is quoted by the Book of Maccabees and by Josephus as issuing a ruling and saying and telling and telling his brethren, "We can't, you can't do it." And this is perhaps before the uh, formula of pikuach nefesh, danger, danger, you know, uh, um, uh, danger to, to human life overrides all the commandments of the Torah except for the big three, and Shabbat is not one of the big three. Um, perhaps this is before that formulation was was known or was formulated. We, we find it later in the Gemara where they're still debating it under the Romans. Um, I think in, in Usha, which is during the Roman persecution centuries later, where they kind of promulgate this, uh, you know, this this principle. So, so at, at the, during this time, there's still a question about it. And Matthias rules that you fight even on Shabbat because otherwise um, we're, we'll, we'll just all be gone. There'll be nobody to keep the Shabbat afterwards. And and um, little and so, but anyway, little by little, um, they're they're, uh, they're they're gathering in strength. And what they're doing is they're they can't engage a, a Greek a Seleucid army um, head on, but they're attacking using guerrilla tactics. They're attacking Greek patrols and basically harassing the the Seleucids to the to the extent that eventually there's there, the, the, that whole area is not safe for Seleucid soldiers. And and this has the effect of isolating Jerusalem from the other um, Seleucid, the other Greek garrisons. The main Greek, kind of the capital of, Greek, of, of the, the, the Seleucid capital in the region of Judea is up in Shomron in Samaria, and it is now cut off. The garrison in Jerusalem is cut off from Samaria. I should have mentioned that when Antiochus had entered Jerusalem, plundered the temple, um, he had also established a citadel there called the Acre Fortress. And that fortress was going to stay, I think Josephus calls it, you know, kind of a thorn in the side of the Jews for decades to come. Um, it, and, and within that citadel, there were a lot of Greek soldiers and also Hellenized Jews that were that, that joined, you know, the, the Greek side. Um, now, going up against a Greek army was a formidable task or maybe a foolhardy uh, mission. You have uh, several hundred people with, you know, kind of primitive weapons. Your weapons are getting a little bit better because every time you attack a patrol of Greeks, you, you, get, you get their weapons. Okay. But you still don't have the kind of weaponry that the that the uh, phalanx, phalanxes have. If you're a Greek army, you fight your, 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 um, the primary formation, the, the, the unit of the infantry is a phalanx, which is a kind of rect rectangle of soldiers standing, you know, tightly bunched together. Um, you would have uh, about a thousand, I, th I think it was about a thousand soldiers per phalanx, or between a thousand and two thousand, because some of them are larger, and it would extend, you know, the width of it would be, you know, something like 120 yards, and the depth would be about 15 yards. The five front rows would march with their spears horizontal, right, above, you know, each each um, each row holding their spears a little bit above the ones in front of them. We're talking about very long spears, you know, they're, they're known for their very long spears. That's how Alexander's uh, soldiers at first, you know, conquered the world, um, because their spears were longer than their enemies, right? And, um, you had you had uh, five rows, you know, holding the spears horizontally, and then behind them, eleven more rows. It was almost impossible to go up against the phalanx. The only, virtually, the only uh, armies that were able to defeat a Greek phalanx were other Greek phalanxes. The Romans would eventually win. Actually, in this period, they're already starting to defeat Greek armies. But uh, it, it's possible that that what that they were winning more on logistics than on uh, actual military tactics. They took the phalanxes and they improved upon them, and they also were very good at doing more mundane things like building roads. So, uh, 
so in supply lines. So, so, uh, but anyway, you're you're a tiny guerrilla army in the hills of Judea, hiding out in caves. You know that you know once the once the uh, authorities you know start once you become a real nuisance, they're going to send a real army after you. What are you going to do? So his only choice really was to use unconventional battle tactics. Um, the army that he's going to be facing is going to have the mighty phalanxes, and it's also going to have cavalry that support them usually on the flanks. They're going to have chariots. They're going to have ballistas, which hurl these huge rocks and, um, you know, all, all kinds of weapons, swords and slings and javelins. And, and uh, um, the scariest of all was these war elephants, which you, it's almost impossible to go up against. <clears throat> There's a book called Battles of the Bible. It's written by Mordechai Gichon, two Israeli generals, Mordechai Gichon and Chaim Herzog. Chaim Herzog, I think, is a son of one of the, um, of one of the chief rabbis. But anyway, there were generals in the IDF and they, and they analyzed a lot of the battles that are mentioned in the Bible and tried to figure out what the strategies were. Even though the, a lot of the battles in the Bible talk about miracles, that just because there were miracles doesn't mean that there wasn't a strategy. Um, it's still pretty miraculous that a tiny army defeats you know, this huge empire. Yehud HaMakim definitely had strategy. Uh, and by the way, it's biblical battles. It's battles of the, battles of the Bible. Um, the book of Maccabees is not part of the Jewish Bible, but it is considered biblical um, in some Christian traditions. So they included it at the end of their book. And, um, and it's very interesting. So what I'm saying now is in, in large part based, um, based on their book, and I highly recommend it. It's a great read. Um, as as uh, they attack more and more Greek patrols, you know, the, 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 um, the, the Greek uh, capital, the Seleucid capital in Samaria, the governor's name is Apollonius. And Apollonius sees that this is becoming a real nuisance. They've cut off the garrison in Jerusalem, he's going to have to put an end to it. And so he marches an army, um, 2,000 strong, toward, to, to, to open the route to Jerusalem. And Judas Maccabeus had spent this time, Yehuda Maccabee had spent this time um, over this over, over a year, besides for training people, also gathering intelligence, creating you know contacts, networking, creating supply lines. Um, and so they know when the Greeks are coming, you know. They have the ride of Paul Revere. They, they, and, and, and because, because um, the Greeks march in these large formations, their weakness is that they can't, they're, 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 they can't adapt very quickly and they can't um, maneuver very quickly. And that's not a problem for them because most warfare then is, is accomplished in these like set battle pieces where you march your phalanx against the other phalanx and, you know, you meet in this large open battlefield and, you know, you crash into each other and it's more a matter of, one of the military historians says ancient warfare was more a matter of pushing and shoving and literally put, put the body weight like, of an army pushing against another army it was more that than what you then what you see in the movies you know with you know fancy footwork and you know sword play and whatever there was plenty of blood but it wasn't uh, but it, but but a, a big part of it was you were literally you know this mass of soldiers that was just being pushed from behind and there's other massive soldiers and whoever managed to push the other ones um, I don't remember exactly what they said, but something like that it was interesting. Things that you don't really think of. Um, anyway, um, Yehuda's strategy is going to be to he, he gets to pick the the the, the site of battle. Um, he knows that in order to get to Jerusalem from Samaria, you have to pass through these mountains. So you have to find a pass uh, to go through. And Yehuda chooses a pass called um, I forgot. I think I have it here. Sorry. I always try to pretend that I just like know by heart and just like read my notes all cool and whatever but these are just terrible notes um this is this this is this was 
the summer between Samaria and Jerusalem. It's 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 called Nachal El Haramia, Nachal El Haramia. Um, it's a few miles north of Gofna. Gofna was where the caves were, where they were hiding, and this is all in the region of Jerusalem. And it's a steep road that winds up this mountain for about a mile. Excuse me. Yehuda divided his army into four, into his very small, already small army, into four divisions. And he stations two divisions on the two slopes, and he himself leads. I'm sorry, he, I think he was, he's on one of the slopes, he's on the eastern slope. That was where the main body of his troops are on the eastern slope. And the army is marching south, right? So, so um, Yehuda and his, and, and, and his men are on the eastern slope. There's some men on the western slope. He has a division, small division, that is going to clash with the Greeks as they come and kind of seal them in this narrow pass. So the Greek army is marching. His soldiers, Yehuda's soldiers, that are now called the Maccabees, um, engage, engage the, the 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 front of the army. The but the the, the mass, this tightly bunched um, uh, group of soldiers that's marching behind them, doesn't even know what's going on. So they keep on marching, right? And they're stretched out. So they keep on marching, and they're just squeezing the soldiers in front into this um, into this kind of death trap. Um, in the meantime, you know the Maccabees are raining fire on them from both slopes. Another, the fourth division comes behind and seals them in that little pass, and they decimate the Greek the, the Greek army. The general Apollonius, who's riding between the, between the two the two uh, phalanxes, um, is killed. Yehuda takes his sword and he's going to carry this sword um, as a symbol for the rest of the war. He'll he'll have Apollonius's sword. This is a real battle. This is, if I called the little, what happened at Modin, if I called that the Battle of Lexington, then this is maybe the Battle of Bunker Hill, right? This is serious business. And when the when Antiochus hears of this, he immediately sends a general with an army that's about three times as large. And you have another battle at a place called Bet Choron, also in this area. And it, 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 it follows, it, without getting into the real details, because for that we would need a topographical map and point out the terrain and um, otherwise it'll just be confusing. But so without getting into details, it's very similar. It's a very, very, very the, the, the tactics are similar to what Yoda had done um, to Apollonius in the, in, in the first battle at Nachal El Haramia. And um, again, defeats this second battle that's sent by General, by General Siron. Now, an interesting thing to mention, an interesting thing to mention is that is that um, before two things? First of all, what happens now galvanizes the people. Like this is a game changer. What happened in Modin was a small rebellion. It was very gutsy, um, but you had those every so often. It wasn't it wasn't it wasn't so you know it wasn't so crazy. And also, most people could just dismiss it. Most Jews could just dismiss it as you know he's very brave. He's very nuts. He's not going to last very long. But now he has defeated a real army. You know, and now after the battle of Bet Horon, he defeats a second real army using essentially the same tactics that the Greeks are just not ready for. They're ready to fight, you know, based on strategy, but not based on their deployment um, and attacking them at. Oh, oh, he attacks them at night. He attacks them, um, uh, you know, on the, you know, in these steep passes. And essentially he traps them in, a, in another, you know, kind of, you know, a, a, a narrow road and, um, and decimates the second army. Um, they're not expecting it, and the Jews are not expecting it. And now there's, you know, the morale soars. And Yehuda, Yehuda Maccabee is a brilliant strategist. He's also a brilliant leader and knows how to inspire people. 
And before every battle, he gives these rousing speeches. Now, Josephus um, and the Book of Maccabees um, give us those speeches. I'm not going to read it verbatim, um, but the but the and Josephus always add, you know embellishes speeches anyway. But what, what what's clear from all the sources is that he he before every battle and presumably you know whatever he's just trying to you know give you know give people hope and give people courage. He talks about how it doesn't matter that we're small in number, but because we represent the spirit, we represent the God of Israel, and that's why we're going to win. We are fighting for the laws of our country. We're fighting for the laws of our um, of our forefathers. We're fighting for our faith in our God and our temple. And uh, these are just mercenaries. These are the, these people that we're fighting to don't have you know that they're they're not fighting for anything noble and anything. You know, and he talks a lot about honor. He talks a lot about, you know, better to die with honor than to live in disgrace. And so, so, uh, so he has, he, he, you know, he has this effect. He's, he's a charismatic leader and, and um, he's able to, you know, he's able to instill hope, which is, which is, uh, you know, one of the most important things, especially if you're, you know, against such odds. Another interesting thing, I think in one of the, um, in some of the rabbinical sources, they say that Yehuda Maccabee was the Meshuach Milcham. In the Bible, it says that before uh, before going into battle, the Jewish armies would have the Hebrew armies would have a kohen, a kohen. It wasn't necessarily the high priest that officiated in the temple. It was a separate kohen gadol called the Meshuach Milchama, the one anointed for battle, for war, and he would he would um, he would you know inspire the troops, you know, encourage them to uh, to have faith in God. Um, and be brave. He also would send some people home. You know, part, maybe part of, partly as an expression of faith that you know we don't need we don't need numbers. Um, if you were newlywed, you got to go home. You know, if you had just built a home, you get to go home. If you had just planted a vineyard, you get to go home. And uh, you, you don't fight. You go home to your wife. You know, you'll have enough fighting in your marriage. No, I'm kidding. But but um, uh, we we have in these sources where Yehuda Yehuda Hamakabi. Um, Says you know uh, serves as this kind of Meshuach Mocham. Remember, he's a Kohen, um, and he sends home the newlyweds. He has a tiny group of people. Apparently, people are still getting married even during you know even during COVID times. Like people were still getting married, and anybody who had gotten married within the previous year, go home to your wife. You know, we, you, that that's you know that, that's the priority. Um, even though he has such a small group, which is which is remarkable. That, I don't think it mentions the thing about people who had built homes or planted vineyards. Maybe they weren't building too many homes and planting too many vineyards um, during this time, but um, but anyway, so so uh, this is terrible terrible notes. Here's a way to not write notes because until here I kind of had been I just had misspelled a lot of words, but then I kind of was running out of time and I just thought I was like I'll remember I'll remember. So this is how my notes go um, for the rest of the class. Now comes Lysias, viceroy and Antichus meant to say Antiochus. Antiochus goes east, three generals, etc. And then the next one says oil. Yay! Anyway, so... <laughs> um, but what comes next, what comes next is that now, having defeated two Greek armies, Antiochus takes them really seriously. And his problem is, he's really not doing well because he has a rebellion that's getting much stronger in Parthia and his eastern provinces, and he has to march there. I mentioned that he had gone there earlier, um, and now apparently, I don't know if he had come home and gone again, or this was a new rebellion, or it was, you know, the old one was getting, it's not clear. But um, but he has to go take care of business there, so he appoints a viceroy to to run the western provinces from the capital, Antioch. That guy's name is, name is Lysias, and part of Lysias' job is going to be to 
um, is going to be to put down this Jewish revolt. Lysias sends three generals, Georgias and two other generals. Um, and now they come with a really large army. There's different, um, there's different uh, versions of the, of the, I think the largest number that they say was something like 40,000 troops, but with chariots and cavalry, light infantry, heavy infantry, um, the war elephants, of course. Um, the Jews had definitely not more than 10,000 and didn't have nearly the same, although they had taken some of the weapons from the, from the earlier battles. Um, this battle is going to be fought at Emmaus, and it was such a mighty army coming that slave traders, this is what all the sources say also, slave traders gathered in droves and brought a lot of gold and silver to buy all the captives that the Greeks are going to, are going to, you know, are going to, are going to capture, you know, and they're going to sell them, you know, to the slave traders. So they had ships ready at the port of Jaffa. They had a lot of gold and silver gathered, and they kind of like, um, you know, stalked, you know, they joined the military camps of the Greeks um, waiting for this battle to happen when, you know, the Greeks are going to wipe out this rebellion, take a lot of Jewish slaves, and, and, and these slave traders, you know, would pick up, you know, put, would pick up a lot of slaves for cheap. This time, the Greeks knew Yehuda's strategy, and he wasn't able to do the same, you know, he wasn't able to use the same tactic, tactics that he had in the, first, in the first two battles. And so what he did was, he waited, he waited for the for, for, the, um, for the generals, and the gen there were three generals, like I said, and they split up. One of them um, leads about half of his army towards the Jewish camp. Yehuda evacuates the Jewish camp, and, and this is happening at Emmaus, also in the region of Jerusalem. Um, it's not clear exactly where it is today, um, but, but uh, Yehuda takes, uh, you know, he evacuates his camp, and he kind of sneaks around the Greek lines, and while, while the Seleucid army is attacking an almost empty Jewish camp, Yehuda and his men, um, with most of his force, are attacking the enemy camp, which is not expecting them. In the meantime, the, he had left some decoys at the Jewish camp that fled as soon as the Greeks came, but in a way, you know, the Greeks should see where they're going, and they would, you know, uh, um, uh, they ran, they fled in a direction that took them further away from their camp. In the meantime, the Maccabees fell upon the Greek camp and had the element of surprise completely decimated. You know, they, there was a lot of booty to take, and Yehuda said not to take any booty, actually, um, uh, because we, because there's still a Greek army on the loose, and then managed to encircle that other Greek army and and uh, and uh, defeat them. Um, I'm not getting into a lot of the details because, again, it would, it would be it would be confusing, and also um, I myself am just as confused as anybody else. Uh, at this point, <clears throat> there's no Greek, there's no uh, viable Greek army in the Holy Land. There's only that one garrison in Jerusalem, but Yehuda sees a window of opportunity. Um, Antiochus is away fighting in the east. His viceroy, Lysias, is under a lot of pressure in the capital from other things that are going on. There's, there's an opportunity to take Jerusalem. And so that's what he does. He marches his army to Jerusalem. And I can't resist reading a little bit more of Emma Lazarus at this point. He leads the men who saw from Mitzvah's heights the tangled grass choke the wide temple courts. The altar, lie, the altar lie disfigured and polluted, who had flung their faces on the stones and mourned aloud and rent their garments wailing with one tongue, crushed as a windswept bed of reeds is bowed. Now is their mourning into dancing turned. 
their sackcloth doffed for garments of delight. Week long the festive torches shall be burned. Music and revelry were wed day with night. And now comes the famous, the famous part where they restore the temple worship. They, um, they're very poor. According to the Gemara, they only, uh, they don't, they can't even uh, build. Remember that Antiochus had stolen all the t vessels of the temple, the ritual vessels. They have to make new ones. It's a golden menorah, right? But they can't afford a golden menorah. So they build a wooden menorah. And the Gemara says it wasn't wood; it was bronze, and they used their spears to build it. Um, they replaced the altar. I don't know if it was their actual spears because of what I'm, what I'm about to say. They replaced the altar that had been um, that had been desecrated by being used as a pagan altar, um, and it had been built with, and 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 it had been. I don't know if it was the original altar or something. They had used hewn stones. You remember that the mizbeach, the Jewish altar, is not meant to be built with hewn stones. It's meant to be built with rough stones because um, because you shouldn't use uh, iron. Iron is this iron is a was was seen as um, a metal that's meant to to cause death. To bring, death to the world. The Mizbeach, the altar, is meant to bring life. And so the Torah says that you don't, you, you don't use stones that are cut with iron. Um, so they hide away the stones of the, of, the, of the altar and they build a new one with rough, rough hewn stones. Um, and that's why I wonder if they actually used their spears or just things that, you know, looked like spears to build the, the menorah. Um, but of course, it's a great celebration and they establish a festival for, for, uh, for eight days. Now, one of the confusing things about all this, um, and about this story, is that, as I said last time, there's a few different, you know, uh, things that to be celebrated. And to, and today, when we celebrate Hanukkah, we're really celebrating all those things. We're celebrating the the um, restoration of the Beit Hamikdash, and that's why we call the festival Hanukkah, which means Hanukkah Hamizbeach. It's the rededication of the temple and of the altar uh, and of the and of the worship, right? The Avodah. That's that's. Thing that's you know victory number one. Victory number two is the restoration of religious freedom, and that happens now also. This viceroy Lysias sees that Yehuda is a force to be reckoned with. He's taken Jerusalem. Lysias doesn't want to try to take it back from him. He offers to rescind all the anti-religious decrees, and now you're free to worship the god of your forefathers. You're free to keep the laws of your country. Um, you don't have to do you know the, all the all the all, all Antiochus's edicts were uh, were rescinded and and um, Jews have complete religious freedom, and but they don't yet have independence. You're still part of our empire, but you can kind of do what you want, just pay your taxes. Um, by the way, Lysias is going to make a play for the throne. And this, while Antiochus is away, is a good time for him to consolidate his own power and ally himself, or maybe not ally himself, but ingratiate himself a little bit with these rebels in, in Judea. That's that's probably part of what's happening here. But anyway, he offers you know, this, uh, this uh, concession. So we have the restoration of religious freedom. Then we have a story that's not mentioned in the Book of Maccabees. It's not mentioned in Josephus, but it's just mentioned in the Gemara, which is written later. And that is the famous uh, miracle with the oil, where they don't find um, pure pure oil that's pure and um, and uh, you know hasn't been desecrated, hasn't been uh, defiled. Um, they they only find a small cruise of oil. I don't know when oil comes in cruises. I never see cruises of oil in stores. I only ever hear of a cruise of oil with the Hanukkah story. So it was like it was literally the only cruise of oil ever that I know of. But be that as it may, be that as it may, my friends, it lasts for eight days, and so we have an eight-day festival, and, and that's the reason that the Gemara says for the eight-day festival. 
But perhaps because these miracles happen at these uh, triumphs, these miracles happen at different times, and the complete political independence is only going to happen later. This religious freedom is offered. I said it was offered at this time, but it took a little time till it happened. Perhaps that's why the different sources talk about different different things. The Gemara only really doesn't really talk much about the uh, great victories, the miracles of Rabbim Biyad Ma'atim. You know, uh, the 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 many were delivered into the hands of the of the few. You know, a tiny army defeats a big army. The Gemara doesn't mention that. You know. And, and it only talks about the miracle of the oil. The other sources don't talk about the miracle of the oil. Even in the prayers, we say about Al-Hanisim, when we talk about Rabbi Yad Matim and Gemara Yad Chalashim, we don't mention the miracle of the oil. Perhaps because they happen at different times, different sources wrote them differently, or perhaps other things. This is very much discussed. I'll read from Josephus. Let's see what he says about the eight days of the festival. Um, and Josephus is basing himself on the book of Maccabees, the first book of Maccabees, which is written within the century of, of, of this stuff happening. Um, now Judas celebrated the festival of the restoration of the sacrifices of the temple for eight days and omitted no sort of pleasures thereon, but he feasted them upon very rich and splendid sacrifices, and he honored God and delighted them by hymns and, and psalms. Nay, they were so very glad at the revival of their customs when after a long time of intermission they unexpectedly had regained the freedom of their worship, that they made it law for their posterity that they should keep a festival on account of the restoration of their temple worship for eight days. And from that time to this, we celebrate this festival and call it lights. In Hebrew, that was probably orim, or orot. I suppose the reason was because this liberty beyond our hopes appeared to us, and that thence was the name given to that festival. Judas also rebuilt the, to that festival, period. Judas also rebuilt the walls round about the city and rear towers of great height against the incursions of enemies and set guards therein. Now, The danger was not over. Independence had not been achieved. Independence might not have been their original aim. But because, again, there's a window of opportunity. He sees the weakness of the Seleucids. He sees Antiochus is fighting distant battles. Antiochus was soon going to die. And Lysias would get into a power struggle with a pretender to the throne named Demetrius, um, officially supporting Antiochus the fourth his son, who's a, another Antiochus. There's a third pretend. There's a. Th I'm sorry. There was a pretender to the throne, and there's, there's there's all kinds of power struggles. It's a soap opera, and and um, and so you could exploit those weaknesses, and you can exploit your friendship with other powers. And so over the course, and we're not going to get into the details of the later battles because this is the history of Hanukkah, and this this is when Hanukkah was was uh, was originally uh, established. But I just want to mention briefly um, that this this man Yehuda Maccabi stands. As a, as a giant in military history, as well as in religious and political history for the effect, the inspiring and uplifting effect he has on a nation. Um, and he doesn't only protect the Jews that are living in Judea, but after, after, these, after these battles, um, Jews in other regions came under attack by their Greek neighbors, you know, who were, who were angry about these, you know, about this rebellion. So they started attacking Jews on the other side of the Jordan River, um, near near the, today's Golan Heights and today's Kingdom of Jordan, um, and you and uh, Yehuda Maccabee set, takes his army across the Jordan River and goes to city after city, rescuing Jews and bringing them back home to Judea. And doing this also, he establishes control over a larger area. And so, be, by the act, because of the actions of their enemies, the Jews end up gaining more territory. The wars are going to go on for another twenty years. Um, Yehuda Maccabee will not survive them. He will die during the battles. 
Um, his brother, Jonathan, of the five, his brother, Jonathan, is killed when he's trying to kill who he thinks is going to be is the viceroy, Lysias, sitting in a war elephant. It wasn't Lysias. And the, you know, he sneaks up under the elephant. He also wanted to show the Jews that you can defeat these big monsters. So he sneaks up under one and thrusts his spear into, into its belly, kills the elephant, but gets trampled and killed. Um, the brother, Yochanan, is, is, uh, uh, is, is, uh, also dies during this time. The surviving member of the five brothers is Shimon. Remember, he had been appointed by his father as the, you know, uh, the, to lead the, the brothers in council. He would, he would uh, be the first, you know, in a way, the first ruler, um, uh, Kohen Gadol, um, who establishes the Hasmonean dynasty. Now, I should have mentioned the name Hashmonai comes from an ancestor of Matisyahu. In Josephus, he's called Matisyahu ben Yochanan. And that's what we say in Baal Anisim also. And then it goes up a generation. It says, Ben Shimon, Ben Hashmonai. It says in Greek, as, as, Asmoneus. And that's probably why they're called the Hasmoneans, the Hashmonaim. There's some other theories as well. Um, the, the, the dynasty of the Hashmonaim is going to be the last uh, dynasty to rule an independent Jewish state. There's, there's, there's going to be an independent Jewish state for close to a century. And then there wouldn't be one for, as we all know, for almost 2,000 years. But for those 2,000 years, Jews were able to look back at the time of the Maccabees as this great hope. Close to, uh, what am I saying? More than 2,000 years later, the Zionist enterprise was able to look back at the battles of uh, Judas Maccabeus and take, and take uh, strength, from, strength from them and inspiration and, um, and, and would be a, a big part. You know, his, his thing was that the, you, you don't win wars by numbers or by weapons, you win by the spirit. And he infused that spirit and it lasted for thousands of years and it lasts till this very day. Um, and let's close, um, let's close by um, thanking you all for listening and may God bless you all and, um, sh and, and may God, you know, illuminate any parts of your life or the lives of your loved ones that is currently dark. May illuminate the whole world, which is experiencing so much darkness today. Um, both everybody and everybody's own lives and together collectively, may we just see light and rejo rejoicing, happiness and health. Um, and I'll close again with Emma. Now is their mourning into dancing turned, their sackcloth doffed for garments of delight. Week long, the festive torches shall be burned, music and, revel and revelry wed day with night. Still hours the dance, the feast, the glorious psalm, the mystic lights of emblem, and the word.